0: This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's
1: time for Bookends.
2: Kia ora. welcome to Bookends with Ruth Todd and Moran Rout. Today, Ruth, I'm talking with Catherine Chidgey about
1: her wonderful new novel, which is getting huge acclaim everywhere and i'm going non fiction with uh, a memoir by carol shand a gp extraordinaire and who did so much work in the areas of um, abortion contraception etc <music> carol shand a wellington gp has just written her memoir things i remember or was told and um, told uh, That's all it is. Things I Remember Always Told. It's a memoir by Carol Shand, the daughter of Claudia, who was a rural GP, and Tom Shand, who was Minister of Labour in the 1960s National Government. Carol, welcome to the programme. Good morning. Lovely
0: day
1: here. Good. Well, you were born at the outbreak of the Second World War and lived throughout post-war hardships and the peace and prosperity of the latter 20th century, and you worked till... You were 70 in your GP practice, was that right? I worked actually till I was 79. 79? (laughs) That's even more incredible. And I had no no idea about you because you were in Wellington, I suppose, but uh, I did know some of the names that come into the story because you have mentioned so many other people and lots about your family. Uh, It's a very extended memoir, and thank you so much for writing it because it's important New Zealand history, isn't it?
0: That's one of the reasons why I wrote it because uh, it's an extended family and it's been around in Christchurch, of course, more than anywhere else. Yes, anyway.
1: I haven't lived in Christchurch so very long so I didn't know that either. Um, but uh, I, you know, recognised so many people who you've mentioned in the book now who I've come to know and I'm very um, interested In looking back at those women GPs, looking at Maud, who was born in 1876 and was your first medical ancestor and one of New Zealand's first women doctors and lived till 1956, Um, she went to um, Christchurch Girls, to Otago Medical School without the support and against the wishes of her father. But her mother, Rebecca, was that your great-grandmother? signed the suffrage petition in 1893 and was a strong and independent woman and um, Maud went on to Edinburgh and completed her training there. So um, that was um, a new name to me because I know about the first doctor who went to Otago Medical School, first woman doctor, but I didn't know about Maud. So that was wonderful to hear that story. And um What about, um, she married a Canadian and came back to New Zealand, but tell me about some of the others because um, you have um, inherited so many strengths and your work in sexual assault and uh, medical um, medicine and abortion has been remarkable, your own work over these long years and uh, it, it seems to build and build as we come through the family. Tell me about Connie.
0: Well, Connie was my grandmother. Her, um, She was Maud's younger sister. And I think was the one who really ended up being kept at home to look after her ailing father and then married a, a farmer, uh, a shand, uh, in, in, and eventually ended up on a high country sheep station north of Kaikoura really Uh, a a tough life really yes
1: Uh, what about beatrice
0: beatrice was her oh she's sorry i'm getting it muddled beatrice was her older sister Maud was the older sister of her husband esme so two my grandfather's sister and my grandmother's sister both went off to otago they were there was about 10 years between them or quite a lot of time between them in age um but particularly beatrice won all of the prizes the scholarships and the gold medals but they both i think met at otago uh, and for some reason it's unclear went off to finish their degrees in edinburgh uh, in the early days of the otago medical school before it was completely established they did they ran the sort of first half of a medical degree and then everyone had to go off and edinburgh was the chosen place for them to go to but by the time Maud and um beatrice studied they could have stayed in dunedin a little unclear why Maud suggested that Maud was a bit short of money not being supported by the family but why that would help us to study in edinburgh i really don't know No. <laughs> I think a uh, uh, Beatrice's father must have certainly helped her well.
1: So what about your mother? Because did she, she must have inspired you.
0: Yes, well my mother of course was not related to any of these early doctors except by marriage. Mm. Uh, and it was always a bit unclear to me what inspired her to do medicine. But she must have wanted to do it uh, fairly, fairly solidly because she had, had the odds against her. She went to Woodford House as a secondary school, um, which is a very pretty school in Hawke Bay, where I followed her too. But in those days, as in mine, they they didn't have a uh, easy time for getting good science teachers. I had to do my chemistry next door at Iona College and in the senior sixth form class, and then left in the seventh form because of the partly because of the lack of, of science and my mother when she tried to get into medical school really didn't have the science training to back it. So her mother went down and battered for her, went to see the dean and tell him that her daughter was a very bright young girl but just disadvantaged by her school and, and he should take her in. I don't know what she said to him but he did. He accepted her into medical school and she never failed or struggled with or anything she really did go very well.
1: Incredible. And now your daughter, Claudia.
0: Oh, she's not a doctor, no. The only one of mine that's done medicine is my elder son, Carl. That's right. And, Claud- and my niece, my niece. Yes. My brother an ONG uh, specialist in Sydney.
1: That's right. It was fortuitous when you met Elric, wasn't it? Elric uh, yes, Geininger. Uh, he came to Otago when you were there and uh, he brought a breath of fresh air to the place and um, wanted to make lots of changes. And he was definitely on your wavelength and your interests too. So that was um, a very fortuitous happening.
0: Yes, yes, we always... It surprises me looking back retrospectively that two people coming from such a different background could really share so many common values and beliefs, because it's it's there's a lot written about people marrying somebody out of a of a different culture and a different background, and how they often those sort of marriages struggle to work because of the lack of um, commonality in their views. But Eric and I certainly never had problems from that point of view at all. We both had similar similar values, um, and it worked.
1: It certainly did. Um, he was Jewish, and um, he was interested in medical politics. And you were very interested in um, medical practice. And your abortion was a big thing for you. Contraception, um, and he supported you all the way.
0: Oh, absolutely. He had he had two older sisters, both of whom had studied uh, science, and. Uh, his older sister, unfortunately, her science career was cut short by the Gestapo, who sent her off to Auschwitz from Belgium, uh, where she died very rapidly. Uh, but his next um, sister, one younger than him, uh, did microbiology and ran a, started her own medical laboratory in out of Houston in southern the USA. So they were independent women, and that was the. Values that he accepted for, for, for women, so no no problem from that point of view of
3: getting support. You
1: were recognised in two thousand and eight, um, Carol, with um, the award of the CNZM. Um That seems a long time ago. I was thought you might have become a dame like um, M- <laughs> Margaret Sparrow. Margaret.
0: No, well the. the, the the CNZM is just sort of one step down from that. Yes, I know. Mm. very, very honoured to to get that. I don't know that I have made a much of a. I think I was just honoured to be given that at that level, really.
1: Well, everybody I know who know, have who talked to who knows you has said you were very unassuming about your achievements, and uh, <laughs> they all thought you should have been. Um, had the highest award uh, later on because you didn't really retire till 2017 did
0: you no no i went on working in general practice and i slowly um stopped getting up in the middle of the night to do rape examinations which i had done 20 or years or um and things and likewise stopped getting up at night to deliver babies i had to to yeah. give up that
1: yes Incredible career, um, and it's so um, joyous to read of your meeting Elric and, and uh, you had three children. And, but
0: Eric, you must get his pronunciation. It's E R
1: I C H, Eric. Eric, yes, sorry. Yeah. Mm, I always want to put an L in it, it must be because of Elric Cooper, <laughs> <Yes. laughs> who uh, has the similar name, but sorry about that. Um, so when you. Um, whatever you did, you, you were out there and um, just doing the work and encouraging other GPs to, um, you know, just get to your, your standards were very high. And um, I'm just increasingly admiring of what you've done in the past and, and are still doing, I'm sure. You're, I'm sure you're still very interested in what's going on at the moment.
0: Well, we had a very supportive group of women doctors who started the, the Doctors for Sexual Abuse Care DTAC group um, in, the, in the mid-1980s. Um, and a, a group of doctors who were prepared to, to get up at night, to stand up in court, to give their opinion. Not an easy thing to do, but it, it, if you have a, a peer group as supportive as that was, You can do anything. And likewise working in abortion, I always had a such good, solid lot of of colleagues to support, um, to make it work. And uh, I think the Americans have have similar things at the moment. I would be surprised whether their change in law lasts for very long. The Women know what they want, and women are not able to be pushed under. Our paper today has a photograph of our parliament you probably have it too in yes yes more than 50% women and the medical school class is now more than 50% women
1: Well Carol it's a it's a marvelous record of what was going on in Christchurch and Canterbury and in Wellington um, and I just thought you I don't think you missed a thing and it's just been a great read and everybody who's interested in medical history, especially of women, should be looking, reading it and looking at it so congratulations, the photographs are wonderful and uh, I'm so glad you've had time to write this memoir it's called Thanks. Things I Remember Always Told, a memoir by Carol Shand and it's published by Writers Hill Press Limited You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.
2: The Axeman's Carnival is the latest novel from Catherine Chidgy, who is undoubtedly one of our most celebrated and imaginative writers. Uh, Catherine's latest books have won her the Acorn Prize for Fiction And um, the most recent, Remote Sympathy, was not only shortlisted for the Dublin Literary Award and the Jan Medlicott Acorn Prize for Fiction, but longlisted as well for the Women's Prize for Fiction. This latest book will entertain and absorb readers and already has had outstanding reviews. You must be thrilled, Catherine.
3: I'm really delighted that people seem to be uh, warming to Tama the magpie.
2: Well, he's hard not to warm to. He's mischievous. He's um, he's empathetic. He's all over the place. And I just wanted, Catherine. Do you have magpies around you in Nauruahia?
3: We do, and in fact, that was one of the important um, kind of sparks for the book. Was um, You know, when I was casting around for an idea for my next book, and I was thinking, well, I really enjoyed writing my novel, The Wish Child, which has an unusual narrator and an unexpected voice telling that story. And I I wanted to try something like that again, um, but in a very different setting. And I was thinking, well, could I go (laughs) non-human? and um, was thinking about a dog thinking about a wolf but i really wanted that if i was going to go non-human and go animal i really wanted them to be able to have quite a vocabulary and then i realized of course that every morning when i would get up very early um before dawn to go to my office in our house my writing room and i would open the windows the song of the magpies would come pouring in the windows um, from the rural land and the pines behind our house. And I realised that my, my narrator was right there, um, you know, saying to me, he, you know, here's the voice, here's the voice that you want. And, and I would see them um, also just a couple of metres from my desk through the window, walking around, strutting around as if they owned the place um, as I was writing. So that's, that's really um, where the idea came from, or one of the places where the idea came from.
2: Oh, yes, a wonderful um source, because most of us are familiar with them. We hear them, we see them as you as you did. Um, but we know that there's there's a complex story about them, and I was really intrigued to find out about their uh, this you know their Australian and mm-hmm. and how the Aboriginals view them in their world, you know worldscape, if you like.
3: Yeah, I mean, the, the the magpies that we have here are the Australian magpie, and they're different from European magpies, but um, there are still, you know, these superstitions and stories attached to them, and when I was researching the book, I read this really beautiful um, creation story about the, the origins of the first dawn that was an Australian Aboriginal story, and um, it says that uh, you know, in those times it was very, very dark and the sky was so low to the ground that every living creature had to crawl on their bellies and only the snakes were happy. But the magpies, who were very clever birds, had the idea of propping the sky up with sticks and climbing higher and higher and higher um, as they propped the sky up until eventually the black um, broke into pieces and skittered away and became the clouds and the light of the first dawn um, was able to to warm the earth. Um, And it was such a beautiful story that I really wanted to use it. And so I um, contacted an Aboriginal organization in Australia, a a place called Madja Aboriginal Corporation, who um, seemed to be quite closely associated with this um, story, although it does appear right across Australia with different tribes. And um, I said, is it all right? if I retell it and um, they said yes we'd be delighted um, if you wanted to so I sent them my my retelling of it and they um, were so um, gracious and generous and and really lovely um, about me using it but the thing that I love about that story is that it highlights the intelligence of the magpie the cleverness of the magpie and um, if you want to read the book as a fable then that might be the moral um, that you take away from the book um, which is that you know cleverness can can count for a lot even when um, you're up against someone who has brute strength on their side um, cleverness might be the more important thing
2: yes because you can read this book on so many different levels you can read it just for pure enjoyment although there are dark. And horrific things in it, but um, mm-hmm. you can read it as a as a domestic story, a story of the New Zealand um, farming community. There are all sorts of levels you can read it on.
3: Um, yeah, I'm glad you say that because um, I, I I agree with that. I think you know Tama is entertaining. He is um, you know kind of a jester figure, a trickster. But, but there's definitely um, a dark element to him and to the story and um, and, and kind of a, a sinister um, kind of presence um, in magpies and in the story and in what happens.
2: The humans um, are, you know, some of the worst perpetrators of, of violence and you depict this marriage, the tensions in it, the, the abuse that goes on and the and the world that goes on around it um, there in this farming community. And it's thanks, I think, to your mother-in-law that you um, were able to get, you know, so accurate a depiction of life in a farming community in central Otago.
3: Yes, um, my late mother-in-law, Beryl Beckis, um, kept diaries when my husband was growing up on a high country sheep station in the South Island, and so I read those after she died um, three years ago when I was writing the book, and they were just absolute gold in terms of getting the landscape right, getting the weather right, getting the the rhythms of the farming year right, Um, but also talking to my husband um, about that life and about that place. And then I talked to, I think, four... um, high country sheep station farmers in central Otago as well, all of whom were extremely patient <laughs> with a townie like me. Uh, and then I also talked to my uh, cousin, Sue Bremner, who farms in the North Island but is um, a bit of an expert on sheep farming and she's an agricultural journalist involved in, um, in in sheep farming. So all of those sources really helped to reassure me that I wasn't making any County guests.
2: <laughs> well, as a sheep farmer's daughter, I found it very, um, very evocative of what I remember. Although North Island as opposed to South Island,
3: <laughs> <laughs> they are quite different um, yes. in a lot of ways. But, yeah. but that's 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 great to hear. I'm pleased
2: yeah. about that. Yeah. Oh no. And um, Marnie and Rob's relationship is fraught. Um, and. You know, your sympathies are with Marnie, of course. But then when you go into Rob's early life, you know, growing up on the farm, it was a place where, you know, farms had been drowned and and villages disappeared down in that mm. sort of Roxburgh area, I suppose it is, um, Alexandra mm. Clutha. Um, yes. You, you have some kind of empathy with him
3: i do i mean i'm always interested in writing complex characters, and i I did the same with my um, SS officer in remote sympathy you know i i I'm not really interested in writing one dimensional villains, and so I wanted to give Rob um, a backstory and to give him a reason for being the the kind of embittered um, angry Man that he is, um, you know, the son of a, a disappointed man. Um, so he's inherited that um, that failure of of um, his father to successfully farm the land, and he's he's kind of taken on that generational burden himself. So yeah, I, I'm always interested in um, in fleshing out my villains. <laughs>
2: But he's an Ax-man as well, hence their title. And that's quite that's a whole fascinating um world itself. I remember seeing Axemen at the Waikato AMP show and they they're extraordinarily powerful
0: people.
3: They are. Well, I remember, you know, wood chopping, competitive wood chopping being on TV um, when I was growing up along with the dog show. You <laughs> It was yeah. something that we watched for entertainment. So, yes, Rob is a champion axeman and he's won nine consecutive golden axes at the local chop and he wants to win number 10. So, um, So the pressure's on.
2: And, of course, just to finish... Social media. It's a very contemporary (laughs) book as well.
3: Yes, well, Tama becomes an internet sensation because he can talk, and he might be the thing that can save the farm from financial ruin because he, you know, he starts to bring in money from magpie merchandise. (laughs) But, um, you know that obviously ups the tension in the marriage too, because they have security cameras positioned throughout their house to beam Tama's antics to the world, and so the marriage is placed under greater and greater strain because of the thing that might be able to save them financially.
2: Catherine, you've you've um, what was I going to say? Carried off, you've um, you've done a remarkable job with all these various elements um, to to put together a, a book that challenges, entertains, saddens, does all the things that a good book should do. So well done.
3: Oh, well, thanks so much, Lauren.
2: The book is called The Axeman's Carnival. It's written by Catherine Chidgey, and it's published by Te Walker University Press. And join us, Maureen Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.